0: In my perspective, marketing cannot solve the lack of product market fit. Mm -hmm. Marketing can help you discover that you lack product market fit. Marketing can sometimes do wonders where you magically find that one customer that despite right now lacking a product market fit, still buys your product and and marketing can help there. And then obviously once you have product market fit, it can help you scale and and be the the fuel for the fire to, to accelerate even more. I think marketing plays a role at least across Generating demand, generating leads, and then engaging people.
1: You're listening to the Paris Talks Marketing Podcast, where we interview top marketing leaders at high growth SaaS and other recurring revenue based companies. Our goal with this podcast is to cut through the fluff and jargon of digital marketing to reveal what's really working at some of the fastest growing, most successful SaaS companies today. The Paris Talks Marketing Podcast is sponsored by Hop Online a performance growth marketing agency. If you like this episode and would like to have a similar conversation with someone at our agency, just go to hop.online, H-O-P.online, and book a discovery call with one of our strategists today. Now, let's get into the episode. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Paris Talks Marketing. Today, my guest is Rafael Sarim Ozdemir. Over the last 10 years, Raphael has built and scaled seven startups as a principal at Royvant and as a co-founder at e- Eternity and Maison Bomb. Royvant is an operator investor that deploys three billion dollars in capital from investors like SoftBank Vision Fund founders fund and Peter Thiel's plant palantir. Before starting Zendog Labs, Rafael led demand gen and channel partnerships at Royvant's enterprise SaaS Lokavant, where he took that startup from 1 million to 5 million ARR and from 10 to 50 FTEs in under 10 years. So, welcome to the show, Rafael. It's great to have you.
0: Pleasure being here. Thanks for the invitation, Paris.
1: Such a really interesting background. Why don't you start off with just a little intro for our audience about who you are and what you do?
0: Sure. So I think you covered the most important pieces where I am in my career right now. And what we're doing here at Zen Labs is trying to help startups grow, recognizing that growth for startups is, or rather the lack thereof, is what kills most startups. Why am I able to say that? Well, you, you read some of my experience and my background I started a couple of businesses myself and then helped incubate a couple of businesses back at Roivant. And so one recurring theme where we always struggled with is growth. That's what I'm focusing on right now. And at Eternity, we were a digital health Startup trying to pay consumers for eating healthier. We were a two-sided platform, so we had B two C and B two B. That was an interesting challenge trying to get both sides to scale at the same time. Learned a bunch about, you know, obviously B two C marketing and then also B two B marketing and sales there. That's a little bit more on myself. Hope that uh, that's a good yeah, overview. That's
1: great, Rafael. With all the experience you have in advising startups, in particular around challenges with growth. Yeah. What are some of the biggest challenges to growth that you see the most common denominators that inhibit growth in most of the startups that you've advised?
0: Yeah, let's just, if I take a step back in answering your question, the portfolio of startups that we work with is very diverse at this stage, right? We started Zennox about six months ago and we work with a whole bunch of startups from I'm just getting started. I'm trying to figure out what my pr- set of priorities should be to I'm trying to enter a new market or I'm trying to build new products. And the set of challenges that you would face with regard to growth are very different depending on where on the spectrum of maturity you are of what I just described. And when I say growth as the specialty that we focus on here at Zendog, I'm thinking about growth in a holistic way. Growth primarily relates to strategy and go-to-market strategy specifically, but obviously includes sales and marketing. But you can't grow if you don't have venture funding. You can't grow if you don't have a, let's say, at least a decent enough product that you can start selling. And sometimes operations is also the bottleneck. So depending on the spectrum of where the startups are that we work with, different pieces in this holistic, almost menu of of problems will come to being. So, you know, obviously go-to-market strategy is always a typical question of what's the most attractive segment that I should focus on within the Mm -hmm. plethora of things that I could go after. Ideal customer profiles are typically an important challenge that are not easy to build for startups. Many times they're asking themselves, should I a product and the product defines what the icp should be or should i come in with an icp and the icp defines the product and we try to help them mm-hmm. with that although it's even for us not easy all the times yeah uh, so that's an example of one challenge another example candidly if you think about entering a new market so i was working with a company that's already already pretty mature was acquired by a different group and is now operating within that group and was trying to enter the U.S. market. How do you do that, right? They asked us to try it with sales, but using sales and cold outbound as an account entry strategy is is really rough if you don't have a brand, if you don't have a presence in the country already. And so Mm -hmm. that's another example of a typical challenge. I can
1: go on forever here. I wanted to To focus on something that you said a minute ago, which is that startups can either lead with the product and go out and find an ICP that is suitable for that product, or they can start with the ICP and some sort of a problem that can be solved for that ICP and then build that product. And in your experience, which one typically prevails or which one would normally lead that startup to greater success?
0: Greater success. Okay. I mean, maybe for our listeners that are not familiar with the growth, startups, slang. ICP means ideal customer right. profile. It's ideal sort of a profile. a critical piece of, I'm not sure I would call it collateral, but just content that you need to have as a startup in order to know where you should focus on. And um, I think your question was, what leads to greater success or what comes first typically? I think answering the second question first, what comes first typically, it, it almost depends a little bit on the In my experience, it depends on the experience and background of the founding team. So if it's a super technical founding team, let's say it's a B2B company where they're solving their own need. It's almost they have an implicit assumption of what the ICP is, but they are starting to build the product and are then trying to formulate that explicitly. So I've just recently worked with a company in that that segment where they had a product and then they were asking themselves, well, who is this actually relevant for? Is it ourselves? Is it someone else? In other cases, where maybe Paris, if you and I were to build a new tech business, we would probably come in with a more strategic perspective, a less product perspective. In, at, let's say it's step one, and we would lead with ICP and thinking about, you know, what's the total addressable market here, who is suffering, and who has the burning need that we're trying to address, and what would this good solution look like for them. So I feel like founding team is probably an important predictor, and it's surely not the only one, but the one that comes to mind right now. And as far as what leads to greater success i think i don't have data on this this is my opinion i like it more if you come with icp first because if you come with icp first and then solve from there you make sure that you one are actually building something that's meaningful for someone many startups you know they fail to grow not because they can't turn on paid social on linkedin but because they haven't built a product that solves a, a hard or an important enough problem for some customer segment. And I feel like if you start with a go-to-market strategy, ideally, but at least an ideal customer profile and ICP initially, you solve parts of that mm-hmm. problem. And then once you have built the product, the way I think about ICP is describing, obviously, the target buyer and the target account, but also thinking about what channels these people pay attention to. And so if you already have a thesis of, you know, what channels is my ICP paying attention to once you have built the product, or even as you're still developing it, as let's say you're planning for your beta, your alpha, whatever it is, you can already start reaching out to these people and start building a small community, which means you start collecting data earlier on what could work in terms of marketing Mm -hmm. tactics, which you candidly never really know before actually testing it. And so you also solve for that second piece of the puzzle. And I think that Both concludes to say, I think ICP first is more promising.
1: Yeah. What are some of the common ways that startup founders can actually have conversations with people that are their ICPs in order to to get a better understanding of the pain points and the problems that they want to solve with their product? What are some of the methods that they use just to find find these people and, and have conversations with them?
0: Ultimately, it, it, again, I'm I'm leading with a lot of depends today, but it depends on the specific startup that you're building. Is it B2B or is it B2C? Let's stay with B2B since your audience mm-hmm. is probably more interested in that. If I wanted to talk to B2B people, ideally, I'm already coming from the, the niche that I'm solving for. So I should have an existing network. I was always start with my network. Who can I reach out to to bring them on board, mm-hmm. either as team members, as subject matter experts, as advisors, or just as people that are my aspiring partners. So I think your own community should be the place you always start to. And from there, it's up to you as the founder to experiment and hustle your way toward feedback. The most important point here is not necessarily having specific tactics to think about when you look for feedback. It's just knowing that you need feedback to to integrate it into your product development. Otherwise, you're building in the blind, and that's very dangerous. So community is one. I mean, your existing network is one. And as you, you know, when you have developed your ICP, you think, and at least when I come in, I help founders think about what the channels are that their ICP pays attention to. And as you start experimenting with the different tactics, some of these will work, others won't. And then you may get a sign up or you may get an email to your profile or your website, whatever it is. And then you can reach out. Hey, I want to. Uh, I want to, you know, obviously talk to you about my product. Do you have time for a little feedback session here? And so from there, it kind of grows organically mm-hmm. by the ways you would do to go to market anyways. Mm-hmm. The important part here for me is that you're intentional about seeking feedback. And many founders, unfortunately, don't do that because, for instance, they're too shy. Founders like to sort of stay in the in the hiding, maybe lead with NDAs and all of these things scare away feedback. That's very valuable yeah. in the beginning.
1: Yeah, yeah, I imagine, especially the, the more technical founders, they're yes. not... Not always excited, the, the most extroverted folks that want to reach out and have these conversations. Yes. And I, I imagine a, a typical journey would be first starting with your network and your immediate community yep. to try to shape the ICP and really understand the, the actual problem that you're trying to solve. And then yep. the next milestone in my, my view would be trying to establish product market fit with a broader audience with a larger set of those ICPs. And mm. at that point in time, how or should marketing be involved and, and trying to identify whether or not there is product market fit.
0: Yeah. Um, by the way, just coming, one final thought on ICP, and then I, then I answered the mm-hmm. point on how marketing helps with product market fit. I think many founders also get stuck in the beginning because they don't want to define one ICP. They feel like, hey, there are five different ones, or I'm not sure this is the right one. I haven't done a data analysis. I think here it's important to just get started, build an initial one, and then from this initial... You can, obviously, as you learn, as you generate data, you have to update and refine it. So don't get stuck by just being scared to define and and lock in on an ICP. Just get started, build something, and then you can still improve from there. As far as how marketing should help with product market fit, in my perspective, marketing cannot solve the lack of product market fit. Mm -hmm. Marketing can help you discover that you lack product market fit. Marketing can sometimes do wonders, especially in enterprise SaaS. I've personally seen that, do wonders in sort of one of wonders where you magically find that one customer that despite you having right now lack, lacking a product market fit, still buys your product and, and marketing can help there. And then obviously, once you have product market fit, it can help you scale and, and be the, the fuel for the fire to to accelerate even more. So that's my, that's my general perspective on a, on a strategic level. Now, with regard to How marketing operationally would support? We can talk about that. In in my view, there are at least three. I always like to think about the seller journey versus the buyer journey because the seller journey, sort of, you know, the the seller journey in my head is you generate demand and you generate leads and then you convert your leads and ultimately you keep them engaged and expand on your initial or your initial customer set. That's the seller journey versus the buyer journey, which is more like I'm unaware of my problem, I become aware of my problem. Mm -hmm. I evaluate alternatives, I negotiate and make a purchase decision, et cetera, et cetera. I find the seller journey more actionable for the actual marketers and sellers and operators. I think marketing plays a role at least across generating demand, generating leads, and then engaging people. In more expensive, especially enterprise B2B companies, sales will play a more important role in the conversion part where you need to handhold your audience to get them across the finish line. In other cases where it's a little cheaper, you could also find product-led growth where I think there needs to be an exchange between the product team and the marketing team in order for the marketing team to help the product team identify and understand how you get to product-led growth because that's not easy to do either. Mm -hmm. So at least across these three verticals is where I see marketing playing a role.
1: Great. Now, a quick word from our sponsor. The Paris Talks Marketing Show is affiliated with Hop Online, a performance marketing agency focused on high-growth SaaS, and other recurring revenue-based companies. If you like the flow of this conversation, you may want to consider jumping on a discovery call with someone at Hop Online. A discovery call is similar to my podcast interviews in a lot of ways. We'll get to know your business goals, competitive landscape, and marketing needs. And you'll almost certainly come away with some new ideas for how to accelerate your customer and revenue growth. If you're interested, go to hop.online that's hop, hop dot online, and book a discovery call with one of our strategists today. Now back to the episode. Yeah. How about on sales-led growth? And this this is still the predominant motion for B2B SaaS, sales-led growth, yeah. getting demos booked. Any yeah. any examples of, of startups that have really nailed that sales-led growth approach that you've worked with?
0: Oh, man, I would love to say that. So my the way I think about sales is splitting it into two. There is one, the motion where you book meetings, which is part of generating leads as a vertical, which comes after generating demand. And then there is the conversion piece where account executives and sales leaders also play, which is a separate step. Now, in going outbound, which is where sales would play in order to generate leads, I have seen, I would love to tell you I've seen great results, but it's everyone is doing it, right? It's probably the number one use, as you were saying, growth tactic by B2B companies and buyers get bombarded with cold emails, cold calls, cold contacts and social, and no one is paying attention to it. And so I think that's the reason why there is such a big movement toward more content, demonstrating that you're a subject matter expert and generating that demand and establishing your brand before it. Then maybe someone from the sales side goes outbound, having a stronger brand in the back, and then it's easier. So Mm -hmm. what I've seen in terms of sales and, and the different motions is that the going outbound route for a company that has no brands is a really rough one. We're talking about even response rates of below 1% depending on the product that you're selling, you may get up to 3%. Mm-hmm. And you, you have to evaluate for yourself whether you want to have an entire SDR team or you have a paid solution campaign or a, a you know, a click-for-cost campaign running in the background, which has somewhat lower conversion rates. Where I find going outbound more helpful is if you have channels where there is existing demand. You know, in email, no one is looking for, let's say, the next enterprise SaaS tool via email necessarily. No one is necessarily waiting for that on social. But if you are on a G2 uh, as a technology company, or if you are on a platform like Catalan or Upwork, or many of the other future of work platforms as a service provider, even a small one, I think you are going to a place where there is existing demand and you just need to capture it through an outbound sales motion rather than generating demand through that two end, because I've seen that work very poorly. Mm -hmm. And then in terms of sales-led conversion, that obviously works right it's it's very tough especially in enterprise saas very important decisions by committee usually many relationships between influencers deciders where you have to get very tactical and also will fail by definition it's, there is no other way than doing than failing until you finally are able to understand how b2b buying processes work and how a sales team can hit the important points to convert
1: so it sounds like you you have done quite a lot in the outbound space i'd like to ask a little more there because <laughs> We've tried with our little agency and, and failed at, at Outbound, and yes. I often see it fail many more times than it succeeds. What are, some of the, what are some of the tactics that you've seen deployed by startups that have made Outbound really work? In particular, mm. you did mention that you need to start with a, some, somewhat of an established brand, so you probably need to spend mm. a little bit of money establishing mm. that brand on the front end. Yeah. Um,
0: yeah. Let me just mention two, ta- three. There, there'll probably be a couple of tactics based on examples. So for instance, back when I was building Eternity, I said it's a two-sided platform. We had a B2B side where I was selling to FMCG companies. And what was working horribly is going on social and contacting my buyers, which were typically heads of marketing, brand managers, product developers at FMCG companies. What worked better is we had a partnership with a large public university or maybe private university over in Germany. In this case, we were launching on a German market where students would actually contact our buyers for interviews. And, you know, who turns down a student? (laughs) Many people actually Ah, accept these interviews. And then I coached them through what the questions are that they should be asking. And ultimately, many of the people that they talked to were interested in what we were doing. And that was a good way to connect. So if you are a small company using partnerships that have an established or partners that have an established brand if you already have a product that can be sold can be a very effective way and that's a strategy that we used again at Lok Event. we closed a. Um, a channel partnership with a NASDAQ listed company 100 times our size. And they obviously have a totally different, you know, game when it comes to brand, sales team, existing relationships. So mm-hmm. I found that to be a helpful way of doing it. The second example would be, you know, we really realized that at Locavant when we started to get more active in the generation of demand space. So for instance, we started publishing white papers, we started speaking engagements at conferences, we started publishing more content on LinkedIn. That made a huge difference for how easy or how hard it was for us to go outbound. So if you don't do that, going outbound as a very young company is very tricky. If you're more established, many of the things that I'm saying and many of the critical things, Paris, you and I have been discussing are probably mm-hmm. different, right? If you have that engine in your back, that's that, that I'm sure is going to work. Two examples, you know, and how you can make that work.
1: Great. So coupling inbound with outbound also seems to be a good formula. So while you're reaching out through email <laughs> and if you're reaching out directly through, say, LinkedIn, it's also great to be publishing yeah. content that they can discover that's going to be appearing naturally totally. in their in their feeds. Totally. Yeah. Totally. And getting back to just more of some of the startup Dilemmas. I think that there's, you know, these theories of blue ocean and red ocean. And a startup Mm. generally has two different paths that they can go down. They can take the real innovative path and try to introduce an entirely new solution and be very innovative and try to solve a problem in an entirely different way where there might not be direct competitors. And mm. if, they, if they're successful in doing that, then they can create a new market. They can essentially create a new category. And in doing so, they'll be at the top of that category and they'll probably win that category. Or alternatively, the so-called better mousetrap pathway, which is just to identify a category that has failed at, at really solving the problems well. Or maybe the solutions have just gotten a little bit dated and there's a pain point in an existing category and you enter there and you enter into a well-established category, let's say like CRM for example, Mm. and you have to compete right away with established and entrenched brands. Which of those, I presume that you've advised startups that have gone down both of those different paths. Mm. Which one do you think gives the startup a greater chance of success? And what are some of the keys to winning in each of those, going down each of those pathways? If you create the market, it's yours to win versus coming in in a competitive space and try to fight for your, your market share with a better solution.
0: I mean, that's a, it's a great question very strategic question. And I don't think there is a super straightforward answer to what would work better. I think if you, in either case, you will need patience for different reasons. In the blue ocean scenario, which is what you mentioned, you need to create the category that takes time. You start at a different place, right? You start at helping people understand that they have a need they probably have not yet recognized. They may suffer from it, but they have not formulated in their heads that they need a solution for it. In the case of Red Ocean, you will, as you were saying, be in competition right away. And from, your, from the perspective of your go-to-market motion, you will probably start, because frankly, every startup has short-term pressures, you will probably mm-hmm. start capturing demand right away rather than generating demand or establishing the need for your product because there is existing demand for it. That can potentially lead to somewhat quicker results. Though, if you are competing as a new CRM with a Salesforce, a, a Zendesk, or a HubSpot, I think even if there is existing demand for it, really standing out against so entrenched competitors is going to be really challenging, and that also means that you need to have need to have patience. So I think both can work, but they're different in how you're going to market. What I would think about longer term is, you know, every startup needs money to survive and you either make that money and generate cash flow or you go and you raise it from VCs. And especially in the early stages of a business, I think going into a new category where there is a real problem that hasn't been solved yet, where it's maybe a bet against the mainstream to build that product or solution could potentially be more interesting for VCs. Now, if you're already an established company, obviously VCs will start asking for marketing metrics. What's your customer lifetime value? What's your customer acquisition cost? How much revenue are you making? What are your unit economics? And that's what's going to be probably easier to demonstrate if you're a red ocean business, but you should also be able to demonstrate that if you're going into a series B as a blue ocean. So I think long-term, what I'm trying to formulate is that venture may be more interested in blue ocean and that will help you succeed as a business if you are not able to generate revenues fast enough that maintain you. Mm -hmm. And then the second angle to think about, I think, is how likely are you to acquire a winning team I think, you know, engineers like to work on novel, hard problems. And if you're looking for the best engineers out there, I think going after a blue ocean market is going to be much more interesting for them. That's my experience. You know, obviously, their interest is in different spaces. It could be a new technology that they try to pick up a new coding language. But if you can help let them work on a novel problem, I think that's going to be more interesting. And the team is an important ingredient for success as a startup in addition to venture funding or just the funding itself. So I think both of these potentially uh, help you build a blue ocean one. One scenario where I could see a red ocean work well, and that's certainly what we were facing at Royvon too, when we were incubating our businesses, we always had short-term pressure, especially now Royvon is a public company. So you need to show something relatively quickly. Where are you going to show that relatively quickly? Um, Well, you have to go into a, a category where there is existing demand. In fact, you have to go into a category that has already been defined and built. And in that scenario, you know, depending on your ownership structure, it could also be an, inf- an important variable that you need to consider when you make that decision. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I've been talking around giving you a very specific answer here, just because there I don't think there is the perfect answer for your question. It's the tricky one, an important one. I'd be curious. What do you think?
1: Well, I think that. In a lot of cases, trying to solve an established problem in a new way is, I think it's the most interesting because what you can do is you can tap into existing demand, let's say through paid search, or you might be able to find some adjacent demand and mm. you can try to get people to frame their problem in a slightly different way. And mm. in that case, you can access demand fulfillment, you can access existing demand, but you're still, in a way, you're still trying to, to innovate and create something new and maybe carve out a different category or a subcategory. So I know that sounds like a very hedged answer. I think it's extremely challenging to do something so entirely different that nobody knows about it, nobody's searching for it. You're going to have to invest a ton in building that brand, and that's going to require a lot of money and probably a high level of dilution for the founders. On the Mm. opposite end of the spectrum, if you go into a hyper-competitive category like CRM, you, you better really have something extremely unique that you can steer people. People know they need to see around, but maybe you need to reframe that problem in, in a different way. Yeah. And there you yeah. can tap in. We, we normally try to start our engagements with paid search. And even mm-hmm. if there isn't a whole lot of demand for exactly the solution of that company, we try to find adjacent demand and we try to, in mm-hmm. a way, reframe the problem in the mind of the ICP, which might be mm-hmm. slightly different than what they're looking for. But it will be enough yeah. to catch their attention and hopefully win the click. So yeah. that's No, I
0: think that's a it's a great point on on having some kind of an unfair advantage that helps you stick out and stand out against your competition. Mm-hmm. Now the question is, you know, what that unfair advantage is and mm-hmm. whether the market recognizes it. And if it's not recognized yet, you're almost in some kind of a blue ocean type scenario in, in a light way. Mm-hmm. I agree in a light way, but you, if it's, let's say, it's the use of data and data analytics, many startups claim, you know, we do AI and predictive analytics BS, while ultimately yeah. they're not doing any of that. And so has the buyer really recognized that they need the unfair advantage of better data or better data analytics? In some cases, yes. In other cases, no. And then you are back to a blue ocean scenario, as we were saying. Yeah. But I, I think it's a it's a great point.
1: And in this current environment, Raphael, it's... Uh... The world is definitely changing pretty quick. And I think that the VC space is certainly, it's coming back down to earth. I think the valuations mm. are coming down and the money that used to be very free flowing is getting a little tighter. What mm. what kind of advice would you give to a startup now in the current environment who is still mm. trying to get in front of VCs and raise, let's say, a seed or a Series A round?
0: Yeah, I mean, it's a really interesting question. I'm actually working with a company called Funden on, you know, investor matchmaking you are a platform that has like access to investor lists and then they help startups get ready for investments. And you do see sort of how startups are panicking and how there is a shift in the mindset of mm-hmm. investors. So I think there are definitely something happening here that we can't ignore. And I think my number one advice for any startup would be make your company better, mm-hmm. you know, improve it. If you actually get better as a business, if your product has better metrics, if it looks better, then then you start to be more and more interesting. So mm-hmm. that's advice number one. And two, What I found when I was raising money, what I found to be helpful is, you know, the first time you pitch a VC or an angel, whatever state you're at, they may not be interested, but they will save your pitch deck. And the next time in, let's say, six to 12 months, you reach out to them, they will look back at what you promised the last time you talked to them and where you were and how far you have come. And so that means you know, just because you got a no once doesn't mean you will get a no forever. And so keep doing what you're doing. Don't give up and stay persistent and persevere, uh, which is generally good advice for any startup. And so I think that would be my number two advice. And then the third one would be, you know, actually manage your finances closely right now. Get money from customers as you have them. Don't give them long payment terms. And and if you cut can cut your costs by whatever means is necessary, that's why we're seeing so many layoffs. I'm not recommending you lay off your team, but it could be one measure, including you not taking a salary as a founder. I think right now is a good time to think about that. Until the market calms down again, I'm sure that won't take too long. People will start investing again. The money has to go somewhere.
1: I, I agree. I, I don't think we're in for years of this, but it is a bit of a rough period at the moment. Yeah, totally. Raphael, this has been fantastic. Raphael, where can people find you online? Sure. They can find me
0: on LinkedIn. My, nef- my name is Raphael Sarim Özdemir. They can find me online at zendoclabs.com. That's the two primary channels. I try to stay focused because too many channels are too much work.
1: Oh, I hear you. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Great. Well, thank you very much for the time today, Raphael. That was some great insights. Wish you all the best. And I hope to have you back again.
0: Sounds good. Have a good rest of your day and talk soon.
1: You too. Another great episode in the books. Hope you enjoyed it. If you want to get notified when future episodes drop, be sure to subscribe to Paris Talks Marketing on your favorite podcast player. And to learn more about our growth marketing agency, visit hop.online. That's hop, hop, dot online. Have a great day.